We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Woolerskin booking the guest. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. Uh, man, you know, the housing crisis continues in the hammer and uh, across uh, the country in most Canadian cities. Now hearing of uh, shooting Montgomery, uh, Montgomery Park, a victim in the tent encampment. Uh, we all know the stories there. We'll touch on that coming up a little later on. Also, uh, in regard to all of this and the housing crisis, tiny homes uh, viewed by some as a solution. Supposed to be a meeting last night. That was called off due to violence or the threat of violence or uh, just people getting out of hand. And, you know, man, if we're gonna, it's a pretty sensitive time. But if we're going to talk about this stuff, we've at least got to keep our heads cool and try to find a solution. Uh, and when people are coming together, you know, our politicians, the community groups, whatever, we got to keep civil. I mean, it's just we it's the only way to move forward. All right. Uh, other news. Good. Moderna uh, updating its COVID-19 vaccine to include um, all above variants and such and what have you. And uh, and the good news is, um, I believe the prime minister has left India. Has the prime minister left left India? Is he left? Oh, I do believe he has left India. Uh, we've got this special report from the Canadian press. Listen carefully. Wheels are up. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is heading back to Canada after being stuck in New Delhi. He was here for the G20 summit and was supposed to leave Sunday, but a mechanical issue grounded the plane and the entire Canadian delegation. A technician was able to arrive this morning with the part needed to fix the plane. Trudeau and his delegation are flying home on the plane they came in on, not the replacement plane that was brought in or the second backup plane that was waiting in England. Trudeau is expected to be home just in time for the Liberal caucus retreat. Mickey Judich, The Canadian Press, New Delhi. The plane! The plane! The plane, boss! The plane! Here we go! They've arrived! Stand up! Everybody up! Up! Stand up! The plane has arrived! Oh, wait! No, sorry! Sorry! Kill it! Kill, Kill the band! No, 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 he's not. Not arrived yet. Uh, but the good news is that he has left. He has left uh, India with with the plane and the entourage in tow and uh, a technician that saved the day who flew over commercial to uh, bring the piece that was uh, missing. But the plane, the plane, the plane, the plane, the plane, <laughs> no, boss, no, the plane. No, 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 not yet. No, you're t- but we will keep you updated. Nose to the grindstone. And as soon as the prime minister, would you want to get on that plane? You know what? No problem. I'll fly back west jet. You know what? You, you go ahead. I, I want to fly in a newer plane, maybe commercial. Get a nice Sammy that I'll pay for. It's okay, really. No, no, you take the plane. I don't want, I don't want the plane, the plane, the plane, the plane. I don't want to be near it. All right, let's move on. We'll let you know when it does land. Uh, the other big story is MP Michael Chong is in uh, the United States testifying in Washington in front of a committee on Chinese Communist Party interference. Oh, yeah, it goes on down there, too, you know. Uh, 
And it's very odd that Michael Chong, I think it's the first time that he's like they've ever called a Canadian sitting Canadian politician to testify on one of these things. Uh, and they seem more interested in it than Canada does. And maybe that's the reason that Canada all of a sudden, boom, uh, pretty much the same week that this was announced. Uh, yeah, we are. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're going to hold as one of them their uh, public inquiries um, into that. Here, Here's what um, uh, MP Chong had to say down in Washington about Canada and the United States coming together. Canada must work toward a stronger defense and security partnership with the United States and allies. We must look for every opportunity to strengthen this partnership to meet the challenge of rising authoritarianism and to preserve our fundamental freedoms, our democracy, and the rule of law. And he was asked if the Canadian government's doing enough about this. Since the spring, the Canadian government has been uh, standing up and, and supporting me. I think before that point in time, uh, you know, there were issues that have popped up, but they are now, like many other democracies, reacting to the threat. All right, so uh, there you have it. Michael Chong is uh, in the United States as we speak, testifying before a congressional committee on Chinese Communist Party interference in that country. Uh, Seem more interested in, uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, Oddly enough, as soon as that was announced, uh, they announced a public inquiry here. So uh, we'll see if one's related to the other or if we're at least all on the same page, rowing all in the same direction. So that is where we are. And oh, yeah, good news is the plane, the plane, the plane has taken off from India. And, and yes, here the there plane. it is. Yep, the yep, plane, here it, there it is. The there, there it is. There, yep. No, no, not yet. Too early. Kill the band. Kill the band. We're, celebra- we're celebrating just a little too early. We want to make sure they touch down here safely and securely before. Uh, we start the ofis- uh, official celebrations. All right. The Canadian Taxpayers Federation is calling on politicians to reject recent EV battery corporate welfare following today's parliamentary budget officer report showing governments won't even break even for 20 years. That's four times longer than originally promised. Franco Terrazano with us, Canadian Taxpayers Federation federal director. And here now, Franco, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, thanks for having me on this afternoon. So let's talk about uh, what the parliamentary budget officer has said and 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 what that how that compares to what politicians are telling us. Yeah, well, uh, no surprise, politicians are promising us the moon, but the independent number crunchers at the parliamentary budget officer says, "Whoa, not so fast! What you're promising taxpayers just doesn't add up." Now you might remember, folks, a couple months ago, right? You had the prime minister. Uh, you had some other ministers. You even have Premier Doug Ford, who smiled for the cameras. They cut the ribbons mm-hmm. and they talked about two big subsidies to two multinational corporations, Volkswagen and Stellantis, a total of almost $30 billion in taxpayer subsidies to this company. You may also remember that the government said that, especially with the Volkswagen deal, don't worry, folks, we'll get the money back in five years. We'll generate enough government revenue to cover the subsidies in five years. The PBO says not so fast. It's going to take 20 years to get the money back to cover the subsidies. And let me tell you, you know, I'm pretty skeptical of government. What I've seen from the federal government is that I think 20 years is probably the best case scenario. I think the government's going to get the money back somewhere between 20 years from now and never. 
what is the difference between this deal and others? Um, uh, I hear there was there's chatter around actual production costs as opposed to say tax incentives. What what's different from this deal? What should uh, government be doing to help or incentivize these business because they businesses because they do provide jobs. So where's that balance? Well, they provide jobs, but at twenty eight billion dollars for the amount of jobs that they're promising, it's five million dollars a job. Hmm. It costs to taxpayers of five million dollars a job. And like, let's just be frank here. Like, how many other businesses can we develop and grow here in Canada? How many other businesses are already trying to grow in Canada? Well, even when we talk about these jobs, they're not just jobs that are magically created a thin air. To get the jobs where you're taking the government, taking money from taxpayers from one part of the economy to dump it into this part of the economy, at the very best, it's a shell game. So these aren't just new jobs out of thin air. They're going to be jobs that are taken from other areas of the economy as the government raises taxes to pay for these subsidies. So what is a, a, a good direction to follow when trying to encourage this business? We've talked about this before, Franco. What should yep. government be doing in order to incentivize and get the same result? Cut taxes and, and, and cut and red tape. It, uh, is that enough, Franco? What? Is that enough? Or do you have, do you have to is. dole out this it kind is. of money? It is. It is. It is. It is. And let me tell you why. Look, um, you might not get certain types of jobs, but over the longer term, you're going to be getting more jobs in an economy. Because here's the thing, right? When politicians hand out corporate welfare, they're playing the political incentives, not the economic incentives, right? You might as well just give these guys a bucket of cash and send them to the to the casino because that's the incentives that they have here. Their incentives are to smile for the camera, to promise jobs, um, but there is really no accountability. Like who knows if we're even ever going to see uh, this money back, right? The PBO says that we're going to have to wait 20 years to even know if these two announcements created enough government revenue to justify the subsidies. Now, let me just narrow in on that because I, I think I may have missed something that's very important. The PBO estimates the break-even cost 20 years from now. So in 20 years, we might generate enough government revenue to pay for these subsidies. Now, that's a 0% return on investment. That's 20 years from now, the mm. government may eventually recover the revenue. That's not a huge return. That's 20 years to get a, a return of zero, right? The government promising us these huge, you know, we're going to get the money back is almost like my uncle, my uncle John on Christmas dinner, having one too many drinks saying, hey, Franco, uh, give me all this money. And in 20 years, you might get it back. <laughs> That's not a good investment. <laughs> So um, there was an interesting uh, article in the National Post, um, manda uh, mandating EVs while discouraging mining is a recipe for disaster, uh, middle class becoming less affordable. Uh, it seems that whenever uh, the premier is selling this, it's like it, it's the whole deal. Not only are we assembling and doing this, but we're also providing the minerals, we're providing the batteries, the components, blah, 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 blah. But what a lot of uh, government doesn't seem to, or the circle they don't seem to square here, is that mining is as evasive as as drilling for fossil fuels. So how do they balance uh, industrializing mining and promoting mining to get to EVs? I mean, are we going to have all pieces of this puzzle or just a small piece? Well, that's a great question, right? Because uh, we, we know that this government passed Bill C-69 a couple years ago. Um, that was dubbed as the no more pipelines law. But it's not just pipelines that piece of legislation impacted. That's going to make all natural resource projects 
harder to actually get going, which means it's going to be harder to attract investment that is needed for these massively capital intensive types of projects. Right. So on the one hand, you, you, you hear the government, you know, claim that it's talking about, you know, we're going to do more development mining. But on the other hand, the government actively passes legislation to make it harder to develop the natural resources in Canada that we need to grow the economy. So we're seeing the government layer on red tape, making it harder for us to produce our own natural resources here in Canada. You also see the government raise taxes, whether it's carbon tax, second carbon tax, payroll taxes. And then you see the government uh, borrow more money to give to a couple corporations through corporate welfare. I mean, the government's plan to economic development, in my opinion, is, is completely backwards. Franco Terrazano with us, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director, uh, calling on politicians to reject the recent EV battery corporate welfare following today's Parliamentary Budget Officer report showing uh, governments will not be breaking even for at least 20 years. Franco, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Hey, thanks for having me on. You know, I'm chatting with uh, Will, the content producer, uh, earlier on this week, and I'm not sure how he came up with this. Um, but I'm sure it was somehow spawned, but not related to. So let's not go there. Um, uh, the, the situation where there was um, uh, the woman soccer player who was kissed by the coach. And then we all know where that's gone. And it's, you know, anyway. So, uh, but this is not about that. Okay, so I don't want to talk about because, you know, that's that was kind of inappropriate. Well, it was, as we're seeing now. Um, but what about the kiss? Do we kiss anymore, or is that something you just see in the movies? Porno movies. That's really the only place you can be guaranteed you're going to see a kiss. Not that, you know. Anyway, so um, I remember when you would greet people, and you didn't know whether to kiss on one cheek or the other. And I didn't know the two-cheek thing. And, I, you know, Christmas time, one cheek, the other cheek. Uh, you know, and often I'd, I'd be like, I'd bang my nose against the other person's nose because I was going for one cheek, they were going for two, or I'm going for two, they're going for one, and it was just incredibly awkward and, and embarrassing. So maybe I'm answering my own questions here. Um, and, and now, if you even attempt one kiss or two, um, forget the bumping of the noses, you're arrested. So uh, is that is this a post-COVID thing? Is it a invasion of one's space and it's time we move beyond this? Or um, somewhere in between? Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, an expert on kissing, PR and pop culture expert, and is with us now. Alyssa, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I certainly am, Scott. Did I offend you by saying you were an expert in kissing? I mean, I just made that up yeah, off the top just, of my head. I just, but... I just heard that. I've been laughing throughout your whole intro. So, yeah, that was sort of the, the icing on the cake. But anyways. <laughs> I don't know you that well. I don't know. Like, so if I was to, uh, we've never met no, face to face. So if I was to meet you, I know I'd give you a hearty handshake and a hug because I feel like I know you. But would right. I kiss you on the cheek? Is that inappropriate now? Um, it would not be inappropriate, but it would be weird. I mean, if I was to <laughs> run into you and I'd be going through Hamilton, you know, um, one of my favorite restaurants in Hamilton, and I happen to hear your dulcet tones and recognize them, I would say, Scott, I'd say it's Alyssa. Oh my goodness. And we yes. Yes. Would you give me a kiss? No, that's not part of our cultural greeting. Now, if you're in Europe, and let's say in France, you know, during the pandemic, uh, there was no more double kissing on the cheek as a as a mm -hmm. way of greeting. However, coming out of the coronavirus, you know, I looked this up because, my goodness, of course, there were no news articles Will could send me on this. So I looked it up and I 
thought, okay, well, there was a lot of headlines about la bise, which is like the little peck, the kiss, is oh. back. So I think if it's culturally appropriate and it's something that you're used to doing or have grown up with and it's, and it's in your society, it's in within your cultural norms, then yeah. I mean, when I well, have... Well, what, what do you do in Canada? What do you do in Canada where, where it's a smorgasbord? It's everything here. Well, you got to know your, you got to read the room. You, you got you you to read the room. <laughs> It's a a friend of mine and her family, and let's say I am greeting, and she is Parisian, and I am greeting her mother. I know that she's going to expect a double kiss. My problem is sort of like your problem. Do you go right or do you go left? (laughs) So I always sort of fake left and hope that I don't get a nose bonk at that time, right? Because that's just more embarrassing than anything else. I think that the other thing is, is that our people even afraid to sort of go out and give each other a hug anymore. Because, you know, Mm. even if you haven't seen somebody in a long time, there is this sort of five second recognition of I'm coming in. Do you want a hug? Or you just (laughs) rest your hand out and shake my hand and there'll be no embrace. I'm coming in. And you don't want my germs. So there is a little bit of a cultural dance that we are now doing when it comes to greeting people. Some people don't even want you to shake their hand in the height of, you know, cold and flu season. And if not, you sort of do that. Let's bump this or let's uh, bump elbows. Okay. But now there is more of a cultural dance when it comes to greeting one another in person. My wife hates the knuckle bump. She just can't stand it. I I love watching Donald Trump with a knuckle bump because he like people are giving him a knuckle bump and he's trying to shake their knuckle. So it's kind of that's even incredible. That's more that's as as bad as banging the noses. So, uh, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head. So is the knuckle bump the new kiss? You know, I think that it's about like what I said, reading the room. It's about reading the person. And if you see that person hasn't seen you in a long time and they look like they're willing to give you a hug, you'll know as soon as you kind of step in for that hug. Like if they don't want to hug you, this has never happened to me, but maybe they'll give you a slight push and go like, you know, stay out of my space. Is the kiss dead? No, I don't think it's dead. Um, I think that people are still doing it. And if they don't do it, they'll just, they'll immediately default to something so that it doesn't uh, embarrass them and it doesn't embarrass you. Whether that's putting up their hand, whether it's, you know, making a little bit of a a namaste, you know, hello, you know, good greetings, Mm. positive vibes. You know, the whole notion (laughs) since what, what COVID has done, is that it's taken away sort of the organic nature of mm. allowing us to greet one another in the way how in the way our emotions guide us. So now you have that emotional response, but then you've got to put your filter in and think, okay, you know, maybe a hug isn't such a good idea with this person. Maybe I'll just shake their hand. Maybe they don't want to do anything. I don't know. I think I'll read the you know read their uh, body language for the next five seconds and figure it out. You so go in that, for a. You go in for a you go in for a kiss and they shake your hand. So will you kiss their hand? I don't know. And and see okay, for me, well, I, I don't know. Is it is if it they're a, royal? Then yeah, maybe. <laughs> or if yeah, it's the pope, no. then yeah. That's, yeah. Okay. Um, is it a post pandemic thing, like a sanitary thing, or is it a invasion of my space sexual assault thing? Because it could I be either it, one. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I'm going to default to post pandemic thing. 
Um, I think that, you know, and also that's the female perspective though. Let, let, let's face that. I mean, if it's a male perspective, I think that you have another layer added on to it, which is, oh, I haven't seen Mary in so long. I'm going to give her a hug, but I don't know. Is that, can I do that anymore? So it's almost like you have to wait for the cue from the other person. If you approach them and you start to put your arms out as if you're like, hello, I'm, you know, my next step yeah. is embracing you. You'll know. You'll know. So not only has Me Too uh, added a layer, but really post-pandemic behavior of coming into somebody's space has added a layer. What about gender specific? Is it, 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 it does the man approach uh, approach it differently than a woman? Because maybe you're invading a woman's space. A man doesn't care as much, or vice versa. Is yeah, it gender specific? I think it, does. I think it does now. I think that you know you just can't make it a given that you know if somebody comes up to hug you that they're going to get a hug. Um, I think that there's, you know, it's unfortunate that there's all sorts of reading that goes into it, but maybe there should have been from, you know, day one, we always remember that sort of overly huggy, kissy aunt or huggy, kissy uncle. And all of us as kids were like, stay away. And he has a beard and scratches my face. You know, there's all sorts of things that we all just sort of push to the side because we were afraid of offending the other person. But now you kind of, the power is now back with you, whether you want to engage in that sort of social greeting intimacy or not. Maybe we need a button, like the old buttons you'd pin it on. A, I'm good for a kiss. No, don't touch me. Don't come near me. You know, maybe we need that know, sort of I kind of like here. my phrase of social greeting intimacy. Can we coin that? <laughs> Very good. Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert. The kiss, is it still just a kiss or is that a slap in the face? Alyssa, as always, great to chat with you about the world items of the day. <laughs> Have a great day. Well, blowing you a kiss from afar, Scott. Back at you. That's the only way to do it sanitarily, I'm guessing. Uh, we certainly know the beautiful song stylings of uh, Stephen, uh, Stephen Tyler and what a phenomenal rock and roll band uh, he is a part of. Uh, but you, you got to know that's hard on the body and uh, including the vocal cords. Aerosmith counseling a couple of shows, including one in Toronto, uh, due to vocal cord issues. Just the way it is. Too much. Too hard. 75 years of age. Let's bring in Eric Elper, music publicist and commentarian here now. Eric, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I'm better than Steven Tyler. So is this common? I mean, obviously, he's one of those rockers that has a really rough, gravelly kind of voice. Um, harder on his than most? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they don't call him the demon of screaming for no reason. Hmm. And, you know, when you put your body through the normal ups and downs and rigors of touring, of, you know, getting up early, staying up late, performing on stage for two and a half hours. Um, It does take a toll on the body, even in the most great circumstances of people with amazing health. Um, But vocal cord issues is something that terrifies singers and it keeps them up at night because no matter what you try to do, the best thing to do is rest and not talk and not do interviews and not chatter during your off days because you are Hmm. actually putting strain on your voice. And sometimes the right note with the wrong kind of body movement can suddenly start tearing apart your vocal cords. And so it's not even a matter of, you know, if if, if, if I'm Steven Tyler right now, I mean, not only am I much taller and better looking, but if I'm him now, like (laughs) the ability for the ability to, to, 
you know, maybe just take a look at what he was eating, um, what his intake was, maybe his vitamins. And certainly the only thing you can do at this point is just rest and not talk for a month. Uh, obviously this must be common for performers similar to him or that are in this industry, whether it's theater, what have you, is there a protocol to follow? Is there a way to avoid this? Obviously he's, he's, you know, he's not a young guy. He's been at this for a while. Yeah. You know, normally during, uh, I would say that the normal things that you and I know not to put in our body are exactly the kind of things that the doctors would be telling people like a Peter Gabriel who was in town yesterday or Steven Tyler or Taylor Swift. Um, don't smoke, don't drink, don't eat a lot of mm -hmm. acidy foods, um, you know, stay healthy, get some rest and try not to do a lot of media interviews where you are in fact using your voice. When, in the beginning of somebody's career, it's just cool. You know, it's cool to be, you know, talking to everybody and fans and doing meet and greets and hanging out with record labels. And you're just pushing and pushing and pushing your body to the limit. That's what rock and roll is supposed to be all about. Then you get older and you realize that the really great singers who can still sing people like Elton John, for instance, um, they have days off when they need to. Sometimes they don't, they don't do more than um, two shows in a row with a number of off days, simply it's not just only for travel reason, um, but it's sometimes just to make sure that the body can recover from screaming and talking for a couple of hours straight. We don't think of uh, musicians as necessarily athletes, but this is very similar to an, any sort of athletic injury. Oh yeah. There, there were the, uh, uh, there were the, a little bit of a study that was done in the mid 1980s. And they took a look at Mick Jagger's amount of steps that he did during a two and a half hour show. And it turned out that he runs the length of nine and a half football fields in those two and a half hours. So it absolutely is an endurance test. It's not just one of how many great hit songs can I write in a career, but how much drugs and alcohol addiction and intake can I have before the body just suddenly gives up and fails you. And people who take yoga know this, people who are vegetarian know this, that, you know, you put certain foods and things in your body and the body is going to completely react to things. Now, there's absolutely doctors that can give you shots of vitamin or cortisone mm -hmm. shots to make it heal properly, like athletes. Um, they've got the finest doctors in the world with some of the best care in the world, with some of the best rehab centers just for things like broken down knees and stubbed toes and, you know, um, uh, you know, hand hurting ability when you're a guitar player of strains. Mm. Um, so it does happen. But, you know, when you're like in your mid seventies, you just have to kind of take yourselves a little bit, a little bit better care, not necessarily better care, but just different care. How does Mick Jagger do it? I mean, even 20 years ago, I remember thinking, how does this guy do it at his age? Like you said, he literally runs from side to side on a stage. Yeah. He, I mean, clean living. Um, I, I think realistically, this is a guy who around 1980 realized that if this band, I, I mean, really, it started in the mid 1970s when he watched Keith Richards absolutely destroy himself with drugs and alcohol. And mm. Mick Jagger said, and he said it in, in Keith Richards autobiography, Life, that um, that somebody had to take control of this band and somebody had to be sober. And that band was and that guy was going to be me. And so Mick Jagger then lived 
as much of a clean living as possible, relaxing when he needed to, vacationing when he needed to, in order to start to set up everything for an 18-month grueling chore. And it's okay to be Keith Richards and be a medical marvel that he's going to outlast all <laughs> of us. But when you're Mick Jagger, um, you've got to be healthy, you've got to be thin, yeah. and you have to pace yourself. Eric Alper, music publicist and commentator, Steven Tyler, uh, vocal cord issues, canceling some shows, including in Toronto, uh, the uh, aged rock star. Eric, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you so much for having me. We'll talk soon. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Kim Jong-un, North Korea, is in Russia to meet with Putin. Presumed weapons meetings face-to-face. Let's bring in Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. He is with us now. Elliot, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Well, thank you. Same to you, Scott. So, Elliot, what was the relationship like between these two leaders prior to all of this? Uh, were they tight? Were they not so tight? Now they just need each other. What is it? Well, North Korea plays very, very deftly off the relationship between China and Russia and themselves. They're absolutely dependent on China. There's no question about that. But on the other hand, they sometimes have strained relationships. So there's kind of been a long-term trilateral toing and froing, but there has been, if you take the long view, very deep relationships between the uh, the communist parties of Soviet Union and now, of course, Russia and the communist party of, of uh, North Korea. These, this relationship is apparently um, felt at a personal level, I read by people who follow this very, very closely. The, also, the possibility exists that not only are we seeing a movement toward Russia at a time when relationships with China may be moving slightly cooler, but also uh, there's very valuable materials that each side wants in this regard. Um, we always get the impression that Russia was sort of going to keep an eye on, or sorry, China was going to keep an eye on Russia and, and stop them from touching the nukes or whatever. Uh, and sort of the same thing with North Korea. How is now China viewing this, that these two are getting cozier? One never knows about the opacity of the Chinese leadership. Uh, quite clearly, as I said, the, the North Koreans are, 100% in a sense reliant on, on China. The, China is their diplomatic, military, economic uh, supporter. China really likes having a buffer state that is North Korea between them and South Korea. They use that very effectively also to keep Japan off, uh, off kilter a bit. So North Korea is very helpful to China. And in this Kim, you know, this particular Kim is not on a personal relationship the same way his father was. His father was very popular in Beijing. It was a very colorless place, and he was a very colorful guy. He made movies and things. But the trilateral relationship here uh, also has to be viewed in you know, bilateral, bilateral. And in this case, the fact that not only are the two leaders meeting, but it's the first time that Kim has met anybody <laughs> since COVID. And the last major leader he met was the same uh, <laughs> Mr. Putin in the same place in Vladivostok. You can get there by train. You don't have to. Um, you don't have to go by international. You don't have to go by way of China, which was very embarrassing last time they had, they met. So the possibility exists that uh, Mr. 
Putin really does not want to leave, as we've seen, Russia. He doesn't want to step foot outside since he's been indicted, you know, in, in a sense. The International Criminal Court has an arrest warrant for him. But uh, the key things here, I think, are three. The first is that uh, right now, Russia is desperate for armaments and uh, North Korea is desperate for money and for other assistance, food in particular. But they might also want some assistance on technology. But uh, and, and we should pursue that a bit. It, one reason this is so enticing to Mr. Putin is that the Soviet-era production of munitions that North Korea still has is compatible instantly with all the munitions that Russia is using to pummel Ukraine. We cannot forget in all of our discussions of the fascinating trilateral relationship here that really what's going on is that Russia has an illegal, illegal aggression against a neighboring state trying to eliminate it as an entity. It's running out of material to do so, and it's on the hunt for it, and it's gone to North Korea for that. I, I think another thing to point out on this is uh, this would be a violation, if weapons are provided, of the sanctions regime <laughs> that Mr. Putin, that Russia supports under the United Nations. So they would be going against their own pledged word not to do this sort of thing. And I think the third thing is that we have to keep in mind that this is a strengthening, basically, of the autocracy front, that Russia is leading a movement, wants to be part of a movement of autocracies against democracies, broadly, uh, broadly laid out. Russia has formed increasingly close relationships with Iran. They are getting those, those Shahid missiles, those drones. Uh, they're getting those now apparently manufactured in Russia. And now they're forming a much closer relationship, apparently as a result of this trip, with North Korea. So this is really a strengthening of pariah states that are violating the norms of international law. But most importantly, uh, it's being used to punish Ukraine that did nothing whatsoever except to exist for Russia. Uh, at one time on the world stage, uh, Russia, the old Soviet Union, our powerhouse, many thought that this would be over in a few days with the invasion of Ukraine and such, or whatever their military operation. Uh, and, and I certainly understand the military capabilities and inconsistencies here, but I, I have a hard time using the word superpower with China or with Russia in the sense that when you look at, especially uh, North Korea and Russia, they're stuck in the 1940s. This guy's still traveling around by train. So again, and you're talking about exchanging weaponry, which I'm guessing is incredibly outdated. So at what point are these, does this just become a bunch of mad people with outdated weaponry? Yes, but they have nuclear weapons. One of the Except for that, yes. That's an important detail. The, yes, yeah. The, uh, one of the speculations here is that Russia might improve North Korea's uh, nuclear capacities, its technology, particularly in terms of submarines and also some missiles. So there's real concern there. Uh, yeah, the um, <laughs> one of the phrases going around right now, Scott, is we thought that Russia was the second most powerful army in the world. Now they're being proven to be the second most powerful army in Ukraine. <laughs> it just seems like, you know, it's two desolate countries that are fighting for... Nothing. At least China has a view, uh, a world vision, whether we agree with it or not. Elliot Tepper with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. Always fascinating. Elliot, thank you for the time. Be well. Oh, thank you. Good to talk to you, Scott. 900 CHML. It's Hamilton Today. We're coming right back. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Moderna has updated its vaccine. It's been approved by Canada into the fall of this year as a booster for COVID. Pfizer and the rest are uh, coming up uh, the tail on all of this. So what does it mean for boosters for us heading into the fall? Thomas Tenkate, professor, School of Occupational and Public Health, Toronto Metropolitan University, here now. Thomas, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Uh, yes, thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. Uh, Moderna has now got the okay from Health Canada. We understand Pfizer and Novavax is on the way. Same thing with the U.S. We remember during the height of the global pandemic when the vaccine started to arrive, our AstraZeneca went out the door and wasted because Canadians started uh, vaccine shopping due to the uh, obviously conflicting information between Health Canada and uh, and NACI. Are we to assume that whether it's Moderna or Pfizer or what have you, that these are all equal or good yeah yeah i based on what you know what i'm hearing and and reading you know I, what i would say is that yes it's sort of think about this in terms of uh just your in essence the equivalent of your annual flu shot but now you're getting a uh you know a annual uh booster shot for for covid uh in the same vein so so it won't matter which which manufacturer it comes from uh they'll all be Pretty much the same. They're, they're they're basically going to be based on whatever the as recent as uh, variant that they can, you know, as part of the uh, the development process. So um, you know, so yeah, so you know, you have to say it's it's uh, just an extra layer of uh, you know uh, protection that that is that we're we're building into the, the the range of things that we we already know we already know what to do with. Some have said I've all I've got all one or all the other, so I'm going to wait for that one. Does that matter? I'm kind of boasting that I've had all three and kind of you know I'm a smorgasbord. I've got I've got everything covered here, Tom. Yeah. Well, I, what what they're really saying is that the uh, if it's been more than six months since your previous booster, and I think for most people that's that's going to be the case, uh, mm-hmm. then then uh, you know this is a this is a good opportunity to uh, have a have a, an extra boost of immunity in terms of what what is the you know a, a recently circulating variant of of the of the strain uh, and so so it's not going it you know because of the time lag between you know when things get developed and when they get released it, it's not going to be the exact same strain that that we you know it's circulating now but mm. it's going to be much closer in you know genetically to than what you know what was associated with the previous boosters and and the the original original shot so so that's where it's it's in essence saying you know based on your level of risk and the risk and the risk of the people you you interact with you know uh, you have to think about you know do you want to is is it good for you to have that extra protection uh and as as best protection as we can provide at this stage and so so that's so that's where people have to be thinking about it you know my sense is that people who usually get the flu shot would most likely uh sort of want to have a the the covid shot uh as well you know heading into this this in essence extended flu season or triple flu season uh and then uh you know it just but having said that, you know we we have to sort of realize that that uh, COVID is still around. There's still people going. You know we're seeing an uptick uptick in uh, hospitalizations and and uh, cases at the moment. So, you know I think it, you know it's still something to be uh, to be cautious about. 
So you you had a great analogy there, uh, Tom, when you said if you're getting a flu shot, then you should probably get this one. So for those that are most vulnerable or should everybody or again, this is a personal decision. Well, well, definitely, I would say that it's, you know, people who are most at risk. So that's going to be the elderly people who live in uh, you know congregate settings, sort of like aged care mm-hmm. uh, facilities, people who have uh, underlying medical conditions that make them more more uh, uh, sort of their their immune response is not as good as 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 others. And so so there's you know there's range of factors that you know if you're at risk, I think definitely it's uh, you know I would say yes, do it. For for other people, I would say you know think about uh, you know is you know what what level of risk you you're at, and also the risk that uh, people are at who who you interact with, and so mm. and so you know definitely if you normally uh, get a flu shot, I would say you know get a COVID shot at the same time. Uh, you know you can get them both at the same time. Uh, okay, but but you know I think that's that's sort of something to consider. Uh, we talked way back when that these two might be combined. Is that still in the in the future? That's not this year. It's not yet. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, that's going to be hard to hard to tell. I, you know, my sense is that my they might sort of because because the uh, they're trying to develop them based on the you know the as as most the most recent uh, variant. That the the you know when the variants are circulating and the types of variants, it it might actually be hard to coordinate that. So so mm. my sense is that you know in the initial initially over the next couple of years up, they'd likely be separate separate doses, but but you can get them uh, at the same time. It is, so I just want to reinforce that it doesn't matter the they're not conflicting. You can get the flu shot and the COVID booster at the same time. It's not gonna it's not gonna be bad for you for doing that. Yeah, th- yes, that's that's what I understand. That's what they that's what the uh, Health Canada is saying is that yes, it's they're both safe to take at the same time, and just a matter of time before Pfizer and the rest uh, have their updates. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's what we're you know that all all of the the various manufacturers are all saying that they've they've developed these, they've they've gone through their trials, they've just got to get through the the approvals, and so so yeah, you know that's that's what I expect. You know, over over the years that they'll still be you know. Developing newer newer versions, and uh, just like we do with the with the flu shot, and and they'll they'll be available, you know, at uh, at this time each year because of you know heading into sort of November December is when we're we're getting uh, that sort of spike in in flu and other respiratory viruses. Thomas Tenkate with us, Professor, School of Occupational and Public Health, Toronto Metropolitan University. Moderna's update vaccine has been approved uh, for use in Canada. Pfizer and the rest are on the way. Thomas, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Yes, thanks very much, Scott. Have a great day. Michael Chong, who's uh, a conservative MP, and this all came out uh, several months ago. Uh, first of all, there was the allegations of Chinese Communist Party interference in the last two elections, not one, but two, uh, in which were to favor the liberals, although it seems lots of people have hands dirty in this. Um, that being said, uh, Michael Chong, uh, very much uh, identified by CSIS and his family as being uh, harassed uh, and interfered with by the Chinese Communist Party for uh, opinions that he expressed against the against China and such. And uh, as soon as word broke that uh, that Michael was going to go down and, and testify to this Congressional Executive Committee in Washington, uh, all of a sudden, boom, uh, the announcement about a public inquiry finally happened. 
happen. So I guess it takes the U.S. to be interested before we are interested. I'm not sure. Uh, but it's been fascinating to watch all of this transpire over the course of the last several months. Uh, and it constantly gets punted down the field, hoping that somebody forgets about it or what have you. Uh, but then, of course, eventually it rears its, uh, its ugly head again today. Let's bring in Brian J. Karam, journalist, author, White House correspondent for Playboy, political analyst for CNN, and is with us now. Brian, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Doing well. How about yourself? So far, so good. Uh, Brian, this story gets a lot of hay up here. MP Michael Chong has, uh, you know, and, and being interviewed by CSIS, our security agency up here. And, and obviously, this is hopefully leading to a public inquiry, which has, oddly enough, just been called, as it was announced, Michael Chong was going to testify in front of this Congressional Executive Commission on China. Tell us about this commission. Is it making much hay down there? Is it a story, bigger story here than there? It's a bigger story there than here, but it's ancillary to stories here. Um, you know, Biden just came back from the Far East, and part of the meeting in the G20 and part of the meeting in Vietnam was t- to try and uh, blunt some of what's going on in China. And the foreign interference is, uh, we've been told here, is a serious national security threat to the United States and to China threatening the economy. And this is kind of uh, what, what Chong has said uh, for Canada. It's uh, threatening the economy, long-term prosperity, social cohesion, in your case, the parliament and your elections. And that's the ongoing fear here in the United States is that, um, it, and it even extends further in the United States. It extends into hacking and into, um, I guess I, you know, setting up ghost accounts and trolling and social media. So it's it's a multi pronged attack believed to be made to our government and other democracies in the Western Hemisphere, including Canada. Uh, I understand it's the first time that a Canadian politician has been called to do something like this. What has the response been like? Was he credible down there? Uh, he was, yeah, mostly seen as very credible down here. But, um, you know, it, it's part of an ongoing investigation that they've made no serious decisions about yet, um, it, other than continuing in, continuing the investigation. And in, this is one rare case, at least in the United States recently, where both uh, the right and the left seem to be on board, uh, or at least <laughs> rowing in the same direction. Uh, and uh, something the United States has, but Canada has been calling for, is a registry of of these agencies and, and whoever uh, actors that are actually doing this. You have that there. We don't hear. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's pretty accurate. I mean, but you, you have to understand, we've kind of been at this, uh, you know, I, I guess, according to what I've seen so far, we've been kind of at it for a while. Hmm. And it goes back to even previous uh not not it goes before Trump. It's back during the Obama administration when some of those inquiries became much more serious uh, rather than circumspect. So it's been an ongoing attempt to find out what's going on with uh, Chinese uh, proliferation for at least the last 15 years here. Uh, talk about uh, how uh, the U.S. or Biden sums up the trip to the G20. Obviously, Russian uh, leader and 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 China's leader not there. Uh, how does that change the discussion? Well, according to um, uh, the administration, it went well. We are now at the highest level of interaction with the Vietnamese government, which um, you know, at <laughs> mm. at one point in time, we were at war with them. So yeah. now having what we've um, what we've shored up with Vietnam 
Economically, the Biden administration believes that it's playing a game of chess against Russia and China, and that both of those economies are um, are questionable and uh, teetering while we're shoring up, while he believes we've shored up our um, our commitments in the Far East, particularly to, with Japan, Vietnam, Australia, and others to try and make sure that um, that democracy and capitalism thrive. Uh, I'm asking you to talk about your neighbors here, but um, uh, how do you think, from a U.S. perspective, our prime minister was re- uh, was received down there? Uh, <laughs> when you were talking about neighbors there for a minute, I thought you were talking about the, the lady and the man who make love next door. But it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like that, Brian. Yeah, really? Yeah, it's kind of like that. You know, you, you guys are um, are far more respected south of the border. Your your prime minister is far more respected south of the border, I think, and gets less um, uh, introspective uh, <laughs> investigation than our own. So uh, Trudeau is looked at with uh, a, a great deal of respect from both uh, the right and the left here. All right. I could have a, a snappy comeback there, but it just it wouldn't be right, would it? Uh, Brian Karam there, journalist and author, White House correspondent for Playboy, political analyst for CNN. Always fun, Brian. Thanks for the time. Be well. You too, brother. Catch you next time. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We certainly know where we are with the housing crisis in this country and certainly in this city. Um, it's it's very obvious when all of a sudden you see people camping in tents in parks and such who wouldn't normally be there. Uh, the rippling effect is felt virtually through every demographic and uh, in every category in Hamilton and across the country. And how do you deal with this? Obviously, the meeting on the Hats Tiny Cabins canceled last night due to uh, the the uh, perception that violence could accelerate and such. But honestly, if we're going to solve these problems, we have to have these discussions. And if we don't, nothing happens. Let's bring in Bob Bertina, former mayor for the city of Hamilton, former MP for Hamilton East Stony Creek, and former morning man for CHML. He is here now. Bob, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, uh, great, and good to talk to you, Scott. You know, Bob, I've always called you Mr. Hamilton. You know everything about this city, whether, you know, the stuff from your broadcasting days, your mayor days, whatever, you know every nook and cranny of this city. What's it like for you to see the city in the situation that it is right now? What what are your thoughts, people living in tents? Tragic. It's absolutely tragic. The, the, The code of conduct for the city councilors says they are required to act in a diligent, and conscientious manner. And as a matter of fact, I've taken this up with the provincial ombudsman, and I'm awaiting a report to come back from the province, uh, because I pointed out that in two cases, uh, with the injection site uh, proposal on Barton Street, and now the tiny houses, that it doesn't appear that the council is behaving in a conscientious and diligent manner. I read Kathy Renwald's uh, excellent report. Uh, I, I didn't want to be there, to be honest, but I'm I'm desperately interested in it because during my time as mayor, we had police blocking the streets uh, late into the night with the yellow jackets. There was a sense of uh, of propriety in in the core, and it's completely disappeared. And everything they're talking about, whether it's tiny houses or encampment uh, solutions, are temporary. Yeah. 
bumper sticker. Nobody's saying how long will those tiny houses be there? Who's going to be responsible for cleaning up the mess? Who gets to go in? All of the questions that need to be answered are ignored because somebody with virtue signaling and empathy says, oh, you got to help these people. Well, you know, we settled 500 asylum seekers and refugees since the beginning of the year. Uh, the number is somewhere between 200 and 500 within those dates. But, so how could we find accommodation for 500 people, whereas 160 other people don't want to go into an accommodation for whatever their reasons are? And finally, Scott, and I, I've, I've got to say this, it, we have to have a code uh, for the municipal, a bill of rights for municipal taxpayers. And you know there is one for federal taxpayers. And so a federal taxpayer, if they are uh, protesting or complaining about uh, paying a certain tax, they have the right to withhold that tax until the matter is reviewed and a decision is reached. Hmm. Well, I, why am I paying taxes for the parks around where I live, right downtown? Because they all have tents there. We've had increases in break-ins in our property. There was a shooting in Montgomery Park just today or yesterday. Mm -hmm. um, I can't use that park. So why am I paying taxes for it? So, I mean? yeah, obviously, you know, obviously there is no quick fix to this housing crisis, which has been years and years and years and years in the making. It's a self-inflicted wound. But if you're mayor right now and you're dealt with this, it's like, I got to deal with this now, the problem now. What do you do? Tent goes up, tent comes down. You cannot put up tents on public property. It's against the law. Mm -hmm. why, why are lawful taxpayers locked out of a public meeting? when people who show up from God knows where are allowed to set up, illegally put tents up in public spaces. So, and, and it really, we haven't had years and years and years. I mean, city housing was a disaster when I took over as a counselor in Ward 2. And we made a lot of progress in improving that. But this question post-COVID of the tents is a little different story. And once again, Scott, we found accommodation for 500 people, yet 160 people don't want to accept those accommodations. We need to, the first thing we have to do is have people, trained people, interview every one of those people, find out what their problem is. Um, are they locked out of their house? Uh, you know, a lot of the kids who are living on the street are, are there because their parents threw them out of the house for, for many reasons, not many cases their fault. So there's a lot of stories with those people that have to be determined. And then, as they did in Grand Prairie, Alberta, you know what the mayor said? She said, we don't have the responsibility to find a house for you if you're not from Grand Prairie, Alberta. Hmm. And they're following through with that. It's quite a good story. And I, I would urge anybody, uh, put Grand Prairie uh, homeless in your Google search, and you'll come up with a couple of stories that they have taken measures that we could be looking at but tiny houses and tents are not the answer it's a temporary band-aid solution that's only going to lead to more problems and plus you have to ask bob right when they were at the beginning of all of this when they were starting to come up with rules and regulations uh you know rules of engagement what, what happens 90 days from now when the ground's covered in snow uh, exactly and it's it's sad to say 
because we we care about those folks, and a lot of those yeah. folks are in, in distress. Are they going to get up tomorrow morning from their tent and go look for a job? I don't think so. Hmm. Uh, now, the unemployment rate is fairly low right now, so we often hear that there are jobs seeking, and we, you know, we bring 20,000 people into Ontario every year to pick fruit and work in agriculture. When, when times were tough in our family, people went picking. Hmm. Well, how can you sit day after day, the next day, the next day? What's the future for you? So th- their own solution for themselves is, is not adequate. So we have to provide them with solutions. And that may mean institutionalizing some folks uh, who have issues uh, or finding them places to live. But they should not be living in our parks. It's against the law. But apparently, lawful taxpayers can't go to a public meeting at, in Hamilton. But uh, anybody from anywhere can set up a tent in a park. Bob Bertino with us, former mayor, city of Hamilton, uh, former MP, Hamilton East, Stony Creek, and morning man right here at CHML. Bob, thanks for the insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks, Scott. All right. Um, what happens when the winter comes? Uh, Hamilton is set to spend just over a million dollars to aid the overburdened shelter system needed to support hundreds of vulnerable individuals who face the cold weather this winter. The city's housing services division says in the absence of a sustained winter response plan, it will need $1.5 million to expand overnight drop-in warming services, particularly during cold snaps. To talk more about all of this, Jennifer Bonner, executive director of the Hub Hamilton, and here now. Jennifer, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. We're doing okay over here, <laughs> man. I, you know, I shouldn't laugh. I, I, I didn't mean to. Um, the, the, this is just such a difficult and 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 problem to deal with on both sides. Uh, you know, you've certainly got your work cut out for you over there. Um, spending a million dollars or a million five to expand overnight drop-in and such. Uh, we know that this is obviously reacting to the problem that we have and you've got to actually address. But man, if you were to take that 1.5 million, could that be used better as a preventative uh, sort of strike at this? Or is it just way too late for that? I think we're way too late to that. We're talking, it's September now. Um, and also, I think we need to be clear, the $1.5 million, some of this uh, has been going on for a number of years. It's actually a cheaper response. Uh, the difference is now that this money is coming from the city as opposed to uh, the COVID emergency funding that was previously available. So where are we heading into the winter on this? Well, I think there's been some movement from the city and some really uh, important things happen. One of the biggest things uh, for me was removing the cold alert uh, system as being a trigger for getting people inside. Um, previously leading up to this, there was no, uh, you know, emergency warming centers open, um, unless it was minus 15 or minus 20 with the wind chill. Um, and that's not okay. I don't know if any of you have ever slept outside, but minus five sure feels like minus 15 after three days of being out there. So I think having that removed and, uh, having a safe place for people to go from, uh, the beginning of December until March, um, is a significant move forward from the city. Um, especially with the increased in unhoused residents in our community. Um, how big is the problem where people just don't want to come in from the cold? Is that an issue or is it finding the right place? Help us understand that because we have heard that some just don't want to go into a shelter. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we have to talk about 
availability versus accessibility, right? There's been a lot of conversation. Oh, there's beds in the shelter. Well, first of all, there isn't beds in the shelter currently. There is no beds in the shelter system. Um, and accessibility in shelter. So one thing people I think are have a misconception about is that shelters actually, you know, if you have a specific medical condition, there's certain things that shelters actually can't accept you for. So a lot of people can't make access to shelter. Also, you know, having to be separated from your partner um, in order to get a good night's rest shouldn't be the criteria that we set for Canadians. Um, so making access to shelter and accessibility are two different things. Some may say when it you just talked about when it's a case of coming in from the cold, that's not an unreasonable ask. Yeah, you would think. Um, but uh, our shelter system um, is overtaxed for sure. Uh, we have definitely been dealing with, you know, staff fatigue. We've been dealing with under-resourcing in those staff shelters, uh, you know, maintenance concerns. We have two beautiful new shelters uh, that opened this year. Um, but up until now, it's it's been a struggle to get people in there uh, based on those things, right? And also just making sure that the right supports are in place for people. Uh, if someone is incontinent, for instance, you know, shelters can't look after them. So uh, as much as they're trying to get inside, they may not be able to do that. So warming centers are part of that. It allows people uh, to get in, get warm. It also becomes the drop-off point for, you know, uh, Jimmy, who's sleeping in a Tim Hortons vestibule um, that police have to go in and pick up because Tim Hortons wants him to leave and all he's trying to do is get warm. Um, it comes the emergency beds that people get taken into, uh, whether that be because they just had an incident in a community or they've had an overdose, um, and they're discharged. They need to free up those beds in the emergency room, the emergency room waiting room. All of those people get transported to warming centers to free up those other systems. How long to get a more, before we're at a more permanent solution, how long before we can see the light at the end of the tunnel here where we don't have people sleeping in tents or uh, we have the, the shelter system that, that that they require? I wish I had a magic ball to tell me that. Um, but the truth of the matter is, is that we've had people on housing wait lists for over six to 10 years right now. Uh, we are probably not looking at any of these buildings open up, up over the next two years. Uh, so the ability to triage that is difficult. And of course, we also have newcomers coming to our city every day, uh, which is also creating some serious pressures in the system. Um, we were talking to the former mayor and, and, you know, obviously this isn't as simple as, as what I'm about to say, but, you know, he brought up the situation where, you know, Hamilton had, had a whole series of, of refugees coming in at one point and we managed to find housing and, and, and get them started you know, maybe 500. However, I'm not sure what the numbers are. What's the difference between that situation and this situation? Have we had housing for them? Because I know that our shelters are full right now, and the majority of that population is uh, currently uh, folks who have, are newcomers. So um, it's interesting to me that that would be the comment because it's actually not true from a day. Well, that was probably the probably the way it was a few years ago before we saw the sure. spike in international students and immigration that we're seeing today. So obviously, th that's that's obviously contributed to the problem as well. Where where do you see this going? Where do you see uh, you know uh, are tents in in parks just a reality now of of a Canadian city? 
Uh, I think it's not just a Canadian city. I think you're seeing this happen worldwide at the moment. Um, it's unfortunate. Uh, the Canadian social safety net that existed previously, uh, you know, stopped in the 90s when we stopped building homes that were affordable. Um, the pressures right now, uh, you know, with this housing crisis the way it is and things being afford unaffordable, uh, we are seeing whole families uprooted uh, at the moment. So, you know, it's a scary time for everyone. And I don't I don't see a light at the end of the tunnel over the next two years. Jennifer Bonner with us, Executive Director of the Hub Hamilton, talking about the housing crisis in the city. Jennifer, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thank you. Have a great day. Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I just hope for the Prime Minister's sake that he gets to travel on Mary Simon's plane with all that lovely catering and the delicious <laughs> foods. And, you know, yeah. the tax maybe the governor funny. general, maybe the governor general can uh, send you home. Yeah. We've had, you know, we haven't had that. We said maybe he could hitch ride with Biden, could hitch ride on a weather balloon. But no, we didn't. We never thought of the governor general. The governor general's plane, her gold plated plane has the best catering in the world, we are told. So that, that mm. would have been a good thing. Just, you know, he should have said, however long it takes to get home from India. Can you just sort of do a swing by and make it double? We got eating to do. We got some good eating to do on this plane. <laughs> That's a long trip yeah. you're gonna need at least six courses at all least, right at least uh are, are you you know it just seems so ironic that this is the situation now with a military plane and a prime minister that really doesn't you know put the military as you know in his uh sites as far as you know uh, uh organizations that may need money or may need things replaced and now it comes back and bites them in the rear end it's it's almost comical well the other irony of this of course is that of all the places for him to break down yeah there's a lot of places in the world that still really like the prime minister and that really think he's uh, kind of keen. India is not it. And of all the places that there, there was one thing I was reading somewhere, and I mean, I don't even know if it's true, but it said that when all the leaders were picked up, they were in like BMW SUVs and everything else. And he was in an old Toyota. And it was just like, uh, okay, is, is that in, on purpose? Is that a little, we're going to stick it to you a little bit yeah. and a little... I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, it's, um, India is not the biggest fan of our prime minister. Yet he still believes in the costumes. He still goes there. He still tries. He, he still. Well, did he, he didn't wear any costumes. This well, time he was I, wearing, he was wearing some sporty shirts with his son, but that might've been before he arrived at the G20. Yeah. I, I didn't see the costumes or the, uh, the native dancing or, uh, no, 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 we didn't <laughs> see that. Oh my goodness. Remember that? All oh, right. oh, I remember that. I, you know, it was like, I think that's, is, we've got the Elaine dance on Seinfeld and we've got yeah, the Justin yeah. dance on <laughs> national diplomacy. And, you know, you could easily have taken the clip of him and put it over the, the Elaine dance and it would have fit into the Seinfeld episode just perfectly. Yeah. You know what? I think we got some producers at the station that will do just that for you. <laughs> All right. So I sit down with the boy yesterday to watch some uh, Monday night football. Oh. It's the New York Jets. It's the Buffalo Bills. Oh. And then boom. Um, and then we find out today uh, out for the year uh, at Achilles tendon. I mean, this is serious business. Uh, what are your thoughts on how this all happened and, and the whole story behind the Jets and the Bills and, and what happened? Well, most people around here or many people around here are diehard Bills fans. I've been a yeah. Bills fan yeah. since before the Super Bowl years. And I said to someone today, the thing that the Buffalo Bills specialize in 
is pumping you up with a good dose of hope and then hoofing you right in the gonads as hard as they possibly can, <laughs> which is what they do nonstop. Every time, every time the bills are like the Leafs. Uh, in fact, around here, think about this, other than the Raptors winning a championship, this area's sports fans are, I would argue, by far the most tormented sports fans anywhere mm. in the world. You've got the Leafs that are a perpetual disappointment. You've got the, uh, the Buffalo Bills, perpetual disappointment. You've got the Hamilton Tiger Cats, haven't won a world, a, a world championship, a Canadian championship, <laughs> a great cup since 1999 in a nine-team league. It's almost yeah. mathematically impossible. The Blue Jays, I mean, how many times in recent years since 2015, the Blue Jays have had really good teams and always, you know, in the end, always end up doing something that they, you know, they can't win. If you're a sports fan around here, thank heavens for the Raptors. Even if you, my parents, my dad was, you know, he's gone now, but my dad was not growing up, was not a basketball fan. But when the Raptors were good, I think out of a sense of self-preservation that I've, I've lived all these years around here and done nothing but beaten down. I'm jumping on the, uh, the Raptors bandwagon. And he was so into the Raptors and I'm so thankful that he actually got to see a championship of some kind in yeah. recent years. Cause it's, it's, it's tough around here for people and, and you know, and, and heaven help you if you're a Sabres fan too, in this area, it's like, Oh boy. So what happens to Aaron Rodgers now? He's gone. Uh, he's out yeah. for the season, obviously. So what happens to his contract? I mean, the guy's already 39. What, oh, he'll how be does, paid. He'll be paid. That's a, that's a pretty good deal, isn't it? I mean, but in full, is he in, still paid in full oh, if yeah. he doesn't perform? Oh yeah, because he's, he's, he was injured in, in, on the field of play. It's not like he hurt himself riding a motorcycle or something. So, <laughs> so, but still. so, I mean, look, he does not want to have a torn Achilles. Nobody does. No. But he played 75 seconds. Yeah. And I think he, his contract was 30, 40 million over each of two years. So he, he's pocketing in Canadian money over a hundred million dollars for four plays. Each of the plays that he made yesterday was worth $25 million. Who would have thunk? And, right. I, and I don't see him coming back. I mean, he's 39, almost 40 yeah, or something. Yeah. That's a tough injury at the best of times to come back from. I don't know that he's coming back from that one. Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Have a great show. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Scott, I think Trudeau has learned a valuable lesson in this whole flight grounded debacle. Flight commercial. Maybe use that time shout talking points through the intercom. I don't know, but they'll get home faster. Oh.